Hi, everybody. I am so excited to share this episode with you today. We recorded it a while back. I haven't stopped thinking about it. Jessica Dulong is a trauma-informed author. She's an extraordinary writer. She wrote a book that I'm hoping we're all going to read called Saved at the Seawall. In this episode, we really talk more about trauma than the book itself. And the reason for that is I am hoping that a subset of you are going to join me over in September's Grief Mates, which is my free grief writing workshop. And we're going to do some reading out of Jessica's book, and we're going to do some writing from it. It is some of the most extraordinary grief narrative writing that is out there. And Jessica does such a great job talking about what this was like for her personally and what her story is. So in today's episode, you're going to notice that we don't go deep into the details of the story because I want you to read them. And I want you to come over for September and be part of a discussion group and a writing group. And you can learn more on my website, which is griefismysidehustle.com. There's a contact button there. You can come over into my Instagram and message me there. I'm really responsive, but come join us. There's a small clutch of people who are already in the book club. Read this book with us and use it as a way of exploring your own narrative. Here is Jessica Dulong talking about her book and her deep knowledge of trauma. This is Grief is My Side Hustle. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I am here with Jessica Dulong, and I am delighted to introduce her to you. You guys are not going to believe this. Jessica and I actually were in a, a community production of Cinderella and maybe some other plays I'm forgetting. I think when I was like seven. So we are reconnecting. We also went to high school together. We are reconnecting because Facebook suggested that we reconnect. And I was ecstatic to learn about some of her most recent work. And the way that it connects to grief for me is that the book that we're going to talk about today is a book that I I mean, I literally wept when I saw it because I thought, oh my God, this is the kind of true life hero story that my mother sought and read in one day and just loved. And even though I would have also read the book, she would have wanted to to tell me the whole story. So she would have gotten a cup of tea and said, Megan, do you know this book saved by the seawall? And then I would say, yes, I read it. And then she would tell me the whole story anyway. So Jessica, thank you so much for being here. This is just such a delight. Thank you so much for, for having me and for all the work that you do. I really feel like I've learned so much from your writings and your postings and, and the journey that you've been on with regard to your family and your parents. Thank you so much. That is really kind. Let me tell um, our listeners just a little bit about you, like formally in your work life. So Jessica is a Brooklyn-based award-winning author, journalist, historian, ghostwriter, and book collaborator, proposal doctor, editor, and writing coach. 
She's worked on a wide array of narrative and other nonfiction projects, including memoir, history, trauma, psychology, and neuroscience, health and wellness, diversity, equity, and inclusion, gender, parenting, law, business, personal finance, and investing. She's taught writers workshops with voices from the war and the Sackett Street Writers Workshop. So you can also see her journalism in CNN, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, Psychology Today. And the part that Jessica and I were talking about right before we started recording is the um, concept of, of helping people write their own stories. As you guys know, I work, I have an editor who's also like a book doctor who's helping me manage the fact that I have no idea how books are structured and we talk every week and it's like having a coach, you know, help me build the muscles. And Jessica does a lot of that. And, and for those folks who are listening, who are aspiring writers, you can always reach out to her professionally because that kind of work, it's really good to have someone who, you know, knows the sort of subject matter and Jessica's specifically interested in trauma and psychology, which is sort of our wheelhouse and why we are talking today. So Jessica, I want to throw this over to you to tell us all the things, but specifically this extraordinary book that I am spellbound by and haven't quite finished, but have been reading furiously, Saved by the Seawall. Will you tell us about that story and tell us about your, your personal experience and, and the fact that the book is being re-celebrated for the anniversary of 9-11 and what that process was like for you, maybe writing the preface and the foreword and that sort of stuff. So Saved at the Seawall Stories from the September 11th Boat Lift is the definitive history of the maritime evacuation that happened beginning first thing on September 11th, one minute after the first plane hit the first building, a ferry captain went offline, which is not the thing that one should do as a ferry captain. You're just supposed to go over and back and over and back. And he just rerouted, went straight downtown and started uh, evacuating people. That completely impromptu, totally unplanned, spontaneous effort just mushroomed out so that there were mariners of all types on all different kinds of vessels from fishing boats on Long Island, tugboats from Staten Island, ferry boats, sailing charters, all of these mariners just noticed, understood what was happening, which is that people were trapped in lower Manhattan, which we don't often think about Manhattan being an island. An island. island. I know it's in the book, right? It says like you've never ever realized so much except on that day how much Manhattan is an island. Absolutely. And also I think even people, and I find this remarkable because I, you know, speak to, I live in New York and, and have lived in New York this whole time. Even people who are local don't realize if they were far enough North, they didn't realize that there were people depending on geography who are quite literally trapped at the tip of Manhattan because where the debris was. And the fact that there was this cascade of catastrophe that was happening first one plane, then another plane, then one building, then the other building, you know, and nobody knew what was happening. And there are just these really haunting photographs of people just yeah. trapped at the, at, the, at the tip of the island. Yeah, the picture that's on the cover of the book is incredible and one that I hadn't seen before. And I, I, think, I think it's in the book about how it was selected. And then, you know, as the book evolves, which really it almost like evolves like a movie in a story. And my experience with it is exactly what you're describing, which is, you know, I can remember I was in DC, but I remember everything I saw on television, every moment of that, nobody said anything about any boats. And the idea that, I mean, I 
think you said the number was between 400 and 500,000 people that our own little personal, like Dunkirk, like I went also and saw that movie. Just the idea that 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 was part of the story of 9-11, that somehow we haven't been educated on or haven't been allowed to be inspired by. I'm so glad that your book is here to sort of teach us about this and tell us about it. I cried multiple times reading the book because the, you know, because people are, are having to decide what to do in these moments. They don't know that they're going to be safe. They don't know that it's going to be okay. And there are many people who are taking their, not, not necessarily their lives into their own hands, but they're taking other people's lives into their hands to help them stay safe. And it just is incredibly inspiring and deeply moving and, and a really important historical story. I'm so glad it affected you that way because it affected me that way while collecting this um, and and writing it. It just, the, the sheer human goodness that is on display through these stories is just remarkable to me. And especially in these moments where we're just, we're in such a divided space. And I thought we were in a divided time as a nation when the book came out originally. And um, now that the reissue is happening in paperback, it's just, I can't even fathom yeah. how, how divided we are. And so stories like this are where we can share our humanity, where we can understand who we are at the core, which is when we just recognize, okay, there's another human being who's in trouble and I have the capacity to help. I have the tools, I have the training, and that's what mariners are. They have these incredible resources at their disposal and they just said, this is just what we do. It's funny because obviously people made choices over and over again, but more often than not, people talking to me about it, they didn't think about it as a choice. It's just, this is just what you do. Yeah. Tell, tell our listeners, you know, you are not only an extraordinary writer and storyteller and researcher, but you had your own water experience. You, you had your own very unique position in telling the story. So tell folks about this other part of your your life. Yeah. So I served as Marine engineer on fireboat John J. Harvey for almost two decades, 11 of those as chief engineer. So retired New York City fireboat John J. Harvey was built in 1931. So this is essentially a a museum piece, right? I've spent you know, mucking out bilges and, you know, uh, taking air chisels to try to remove rust so that we can patch, you know, the hull, all, all different work. And so I, I came up what they call a hawse piper, which basically means I didn't go to school for it. I learned it on the job. And, and so I started with an apprenticeship and, and served on the boat. And, and in fact, I started that apprenticeship six months before yeah. September 11th. And I wrote about it in my first book, which is called My River Chronicles, Rediscovering yeah. the Work That Built America. And talked about how I was sort of taking a reverse traje- trajectory from what the nation was doing. So the nation was getting more and more high tech. And actually from my regular job, I had been working as a dot-commer in the Empire State Building, you know, like the height of the dot-com yeah. bubble. And then of course the bubble burst. It was right at the same time as I went freelance in terms of writing and then really dug in deep to, to work on the fireboat. So that boat, it had been very clearly stated by the fire department of New York that in no way, shape or form was that boat supposed to be anywhere near an active fire because right. it was run by volunteers. It right. was 
not an active duty boat. And, and let's fact, be clear. Yeah, yes, totally. And all the rules change that day yeah. on every level. And, yeah. you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that fireboats, both fireboat John J. Harvey, the retired boat that had no business being near a fire, but also the, the working boats from the city, still FDNY active duty boats, they provided the only firefighting water that was available on yeah. state for days because as people may recall, the collapse, the yeah. collapses of the towers, not only um, shattered water mains, but also completely covered up hydrants. So there was no water. So it was Hudson River water that fought fires down there. There's this beautiful moment in your book where you talk about like firefighters, you know, washing their faces and, you know, sit up yeah. their faces and tasting the river water. I mean, it's just like, it's like a writer's dream of a sentence, but it's really brings home what's, ha- you know, what's happening in these yeah. moments. What made you want to work on this boat? Was it hearkening back to some long lost dream? Did you, you know, see an ad in a subway station? Like where did it come from? How does one end up on an antique fireboat, Jessica? Right. right. Well, total blissful accident is the, the way that I've decided to describe it. Basically. So I was working in the empire state building for my little dot-com company that was subletting space from this guy named David, who was one of the original sort of trustees of the boat or purchasers of this boat that was purchased at a scrap auction. So quite literally, it was going to get like chopped up and, you know, repurposed metal for something else. And instead, this group of individuals decided to buy the boat and to, to preserve it and to make a preservation project. And is that, I haven't read your first book. Is that the story of your, is that in your first book? Do I need yes. to get that one now? Cause I'm going to love that story as much. <laughs> that is fantastic. Tell me about what it's like to be revisiting the words because you're reissuing it. I feel like if we stood on a street corner and handed this out, we would be doing everyone a service to just partly because it's really inspirational. I want to talk today a little bit about what the forward talks about, which is sort of the overlay between the experiences that maybe even particularly New Yorkers, but all of us have been having with COVID and sort of the echoes of 9-11. So talk to us a little bit about why this is important. It's an anniversary, but, but what was that like for you to go and revisit the words now? Given the topic that we're, that we're talking about here today, I had a lot of PTSD issues to deal with after my service at Ground Zero. And so revisiting that and trying to draw the links between between the pandemic and September 11th, and, and because they were very connected to me in my mind, in my heart, in my body, and I was trying to figure out why and try to put that down on the page for the preface, which was really challenging. One connection point, which I think really it connects to grief, is that there are there are just moments in our lives that are just defining moments. There's a before and an after. Yeah. And those those moments, as I write in the in the opening line, moments that define endings also mark beginnings. And so it's just this clear delineation that happens. And this happens for us as individuals, when we lose someone or when we get that diagnosis or when, you know, a baby is born, there are just these landmark moments, right? Yeah. And so for me and for so many of us collectively, September 11th, 2001, split history in this country, at least, and let's just speak about this country, although there were, of course, international repercussions which we could talk about, but really there was a before and an after. And it was a very clearly defined moment 
we had to look back to understand, but because at first it was, oh, a small plane hit, you know, but there's a moment when, when the realization happened that this was a terrorist attack, that people, terrorists had literally used passenger filled planes as missiles. And there's no going back from that reality. And so the pandemic is similar, but there's less clarity about time in the demarcation because every person has their own sort of anniversary where maybe it's the first time the school got shut down and the kids didn't go to school. You know, everybody has a different beginning. And so I've been really thinking a lot about what that means for us, because as humans, the anniversary of a death or uh, a tragedy, it's in our bones, right? I mean, you know, this as a therapist that, that even before you necessarily look at the calendar, you can feel the anniversary coming. And oftentimes it's like, oh, that's why I'm all messed up. Right. And so I just, I'm really, really deeply interested in and concerned about what it's going to mean for us, how we're going to landmark the COVID pandemic anniversary when there's no distinct point. And instead it's sort of this sprawling month after month, you know, tragedy that's still unfolding. I mean, people, so many people are still dying every single day in this country, never mind what's happening internationally, which is profoundly horrific. So in any event, I wanted to find a way to explain the natural connection for me between those events and, and writing the preface just knocked me out. (laughs) It just stirred everything back up and and I'm, I'm glad at least that I was able to get some semblance of what was in my head and my heart down on the page. You know, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, cause you, we were talking about this, that right now, as we're recording, I'm up here on Cape Cod, sort of doing the last vestiges of putting my parents' life t- to bed. We're selling the house, their, their last precious items are, you know, being distributed. And it, it is a revisit to a, t- to a time and a place for me, which is almost two years ago, that really was traumatic. And just because this is how the listeners and we talk about it this way, September 11th is a traumatic event. COVID is an ongoing traumatic event. Not everyone is traumatized by a traumatic event, right? So not everybody's system goes into overload and, you know, you had PTSD, I had PTSD. And just to remind our listeners, what that means is your neuro system has some short circuiting. And so you are experiencing an intensity of physical emotion inside your body, intensity of thoughts, feelings, images, that can show up as nightmares that trigger your body into having really strong responses. It's not precipitated by something that's happening right now. And Mm -hmm. so it's very difficult to manage and it requires, in my case, it required pretty comprehensive treatment, but not everyone is traumatized. And so part of, part of the story is sort of coming to understand that like there's a traumatic event some people will be traumatized. Some people won't. It's still a before and after for everyone. Mm -hmm. And when we come out the other side, and part of the reason I have a grief writers workshop is that we have to have a narrative. We have to have a story that doesn't make us go under the water every time we think about the thing and things like anniversaries bounce us back up to those intense feelings so that we, you know, we can feel like we're under the water. It doesn't have to be an anniversary for me. Anniversaries are not as hard as some other things. But I think part of what you just gracefully described to us is just going back 
and writing the preface and going into that experience for yourself again, it was a really heavy, heavy lift. Mm-hmm. And, and the words that we, you end up writing are a lot of other people's story on that day. So there's a couple of ways that we can help ourselves with the experience of trauma, but being able to have a clear understanding and narrative goes a long way. And not everybody gets one, by the way, there's a, there's a whole element of, I guess it falls into the pocket of ambiguous grief, but like people who don't know what happened to their daughter, they just know she died. They don't know where she was on that day or that thing. Your record is so meticulous that it's both kind of excruciating, right? Cause like now we know all the things. Right. And also this gift of, oh, we know the things. Yeah. It's the, what you're saying about narrative is something that I'm spending so much time thinking about. And it's something I, I'm, I'm working actively um, with clients on traumatic uh, material, you know, everything from revolutions to the Holocaust, to abuse situations, to racism. There are all these, all these threads and the narrative component is so critical. And it's interesting because ultimately my job is to help for people who are trying to make a book, right? As you said, structuring a book is really challenging. I have a narrative job just in terms of that, but there's the other piece that you're talking about, which is the narrative that that is healing, that can heal you. And for one particular project that I'm working on right now, there's just this transformational moment for him when he he rewrote his narrative in his mind through a series of incidents that happened. And all of a sudden he could see his whole life differently. Yeah. And so the deep wound of the loss of his father, he it's like it recalibrated his brain. And you know, as, as a mental health professional that literally there, there are changes that are happening in the brain. And I'm sure you've read all the research about how writing trauma Aside from the gift of of writing trauma and then letting somebody else learn from it, that's that's a separate thing. Even for oneself, yeah. you you move memory from the limbic system, the very reactive part of the brain, to the the, the executive function part, yeah. right? And so you you literally in finding words to tell the story, you're rewiring your brain. And that is a really important part of the healing process. And the counterpoint to that is that the secondary trauma that I experienced in telling these other people's stories, right? And so just as a, as a journalist, I think it's important for us to recognize, you know, the journalists and historians make a choice to wade in those waters to be able to collect the history that is crucial to our understanding of ourselves as people, as a nation. Those details, which are harrowing, they are the story. I mean, without story, we're lost. We're absolutely lost on every level. We will never understand each other or ourselves until we can understand story. There's a couple of things I'm thinking while you're talking about this. One is I'm always struck by people like journalists, right? Who are going into the traumatic story without maybe being given the tools to not absorb that so that it doesn't become an overwhelming burden. Cause there is this vicarious trauma that we can have in, in experiencing the empathy of connection around someone that you want to know their story and, and care about. So a lot of the work that I do is working with the people who are experiencing the vicarious trauma. They're in it and carrying it. 
but exactly what you just described about the limbic system. And you described it so beautifully early grief, the trauma in your mind being very actually akin to getting a concussion. Mm -hmm. You know, I teach these little classes about what here's what's going on in your brain and people find them really comforting. Cause it's like, wow, that's actually a really big deal. You know, when I heard that my dad died and then suddenly I couldn't remember my name, like that's not because I'm an idiot. It's because this is what happened to my brain. Similarly, on the other side of that is there is stuff that we do with the brain and the body to help move that energy. I always describe the traumas like getting a gong hitting your brain and there's all this reverberation in narrative being able to write a story so that your mind doesn't have to constantly loop on it. And you just know that these are the words and I like these words and these words are my true words that make sense to me. It gives your mind permission to not have to turn them over and over and over, which is part of PTSD. But also there is neuroscience that says exactly what you just said, which is the plasticity of the brain allows for this healing around some of that stuff that the gong rang. And that's like miraculous. It's miraculous that our language center of our brain can do that. So the therapy that I had done to me and the therapy that I do, we use both memory. Mm -hmm. So what happened and memory is where the trauma is held and imagination. So one example of this is when I learned of my mother's death, I was in a minivan with a bunch of kids the car was like idling. My husband has to tell me that she died. I'm in a parking lot in, you know, Brookline, Massachusetts. And I really had to decide, like, am I going to lose my mind and break down about this? Or am I going to be like a grown-up who takes care of these kids? There was like a choice point. And part of my trauma was driven on the fact that I took care of those kids instead of took care of myself. I don't have regret about that. I understand that. But in the therapy I have an imaginative story now of my older brother coming to get me. It did not happen. Right. But when I think about that memory, it feels like it happened. So in the PTSD, when my limbic system is jacked up, when the story stays the trauma, I couldn't even write it for like months and months and months. With the therapy, with the narrative, being able to hold a story that I can manage, which again, I know the facts. My brother did not drive there and pick me up, but in my imagination, that sensation in my body, I am more supported. I am able to use my imagination to support myself in a way that didn't even happen. And I'm able to hold the entire story differently in my body. When we talk about writing and history and story, like there is such a deep therapeutic experience in helping people and people writing their own words down in that memoir format. That is such a powerful story. And I just, I I never, in my next life, I'm going to be many things, but one of them is a neuroscientist. Right, me too. You and I. (laughs) But it's just to understand the, the science of how that happens. is just, it's just so endlessly intriguing to me. And, you know, connected to that is intergenerational trauma, right? Is, is how the stuff gets encoded in the DNA. But while you were talking and, and talking about the, like, you know, I've, the, the, I forgot my name after my father died thing. One of the things, one of the stories that I, that I trace in this book saved at the seawall really, really affected me and still affects me, which is that a, there was a, 
young girl. She's, she's four years old. She's with her beloved nanny who has taken care of her since she was a newborn in a house, a townhouse that is very, very close to the World Trade Center. And this nanny is in this horrific position where she's trying to find out what's happening. And the closer people were, the less they knew about what was yeah. happening. That's what was really remarkable. So in any event, the, the, the mother calls, understands that something happening, says, I'm coming. She's all the way uptown. Stay there. But then the, the cascade just keeps worsening and worsening. And, and the nanny ends up taking the child, carrying this four-year-old through the collapse of the first tower. And then again, there's a collapse of the second tower and she's trying to get her to safety. And, um, She ends up evacuating with the child on a little police boat and she ends up safely in New Jersey. And the story is longer, but basically then the mother and, and the daughter are now separated. But part of that separation was fueled by the fact that this nanny who had been with this child and with this family for four years very intelligent person, very committed. They loved each other. She called the, she called the little girl kitten. She could not remember the phone number of kitten's mother. Yeah. Yep. She couldn't, she just couldn't trace it because her mind just, she was so dedicated to protecting this little girl and she saved her life. I mean, she saved her life and you know, the story unfolds, but she did all these remarkable healing things to help keep the little girl intact sort of psychologically in the aftermath in any event that it's just a connection point that we need to recognize and appreciate that our brains are doing really important things right to keep us alive and that when that system overrides it's first off for a lot of people it's not a choice right that just happens yeah but that it's, you know, it's real and that there's nothing to be ashamed of, you know, and it's not a personal weakness. And I think normalizing that is really important. God, I have chills all over my body from that story. And part of what you're highlighting, which is, again, like if we were to talk about grief, if we had taken a class in college, we would just know this. We would just know like, oh, well, that's what happens with your brain. You know, the same way that like, that's what happens with your body when you're going through puberty. But You're describing what we know, which is the, when there's a traumatic event, when there's something that, you know, jacks your, your amygdala up, it says, yes, there is actual threat and danger that it chokes off the oxygen that goes to the front of your brain, which is where you would retrieve phone numbers from. But it means that you can run through burning buildings because you have all this adrenaline and cortisol and you are in fight flight, ready to go. Right. I don't know that this is like a statistical response, but the kind of therapy that I do, which is the body centered therapy are, and the folks who end up, I think having really, really, really deep struggles with shame are not the ones who fight because for whatever reason we think, even if that's something that gets someone mortally wounded, we think fighting is a good thing. They're the folks who freeze and the folks who flee. And because we somehow, even though if you have frozen and you have fled and you are here to tell the tale, those systems did their job because that's what they're supposed to do, which is help you survive. There is a lot of extra energy on top of those, particularly with the freeze, which is I wanted to do something. I couldn't make my body move. I couldn't come up with a better response. I couldn't do anything differently. 
part of what we do is that thing that I just described, which is we just allow your body to do something differently while you're in that memory state. We just let it do something differently. Mm. What's interesting for me, just in that same moment that I described to you, you know, I got the message that my mother had died, which actually I already knew in my own body from body cues that my body had sent me. I knew that she had died. And in that split second, I was like, okay, I have to call all five of my siblings. And so I was action oriented in that moment. And I called all five of my siblings and miraculously, they all picked up the phone about a year later. And in that moment, as I'm calling them, I'm like, Megan, you're a trauma therapist. They're going to remember this moment for the rest of your life. Like you have got to get online and, and handle this situation. About a year later, I was like, Jesus, I have every single one of their partner's phone numbers. Why didn't I call my brother's wife and ask her to go to him and break the news? Oh, wow. It didn't even occur to me for a year, Jessica, like for a whole year. And we know this, right? We think that our bodies calm down or we think that our bodies, but even still now, and this is partly how we code memory. I can't really tell you the series of events that happened as my dad was dying from cancer two years before my mom, three years before my mom, I, your brain doesn't code sequential memory very well at that period of time. And there are people, my mother was one of them who really felt some energy about that. Like, why can't I remember whether this happened before that? And so you and I can come back as neuroscientists together because I just, (laughs) I find a lot of comfort in saying that's your brain is actually designed. And you said it so beautifully. This is a defense mechanism. It is protecting you. You're not failing as a human because you weren't courageous enough. We are wired to respond this way. Our brain does not want you to be flooded with all kinds of intense feeling. It wants you to get out of the towers. It wants you to get that child away. You're not an idiot. You actually don't need the phone number. You need to run. Right. Right. And it is really fascinating when you learn about like what chemicals are doing that and how long it takes for those chemicals to get through your body and what other body responses you might expect because those hormones were overloaded. It's super wild. Where are you in your process? Because the new stuff with the book is sort of new-ish. And you said, boy, when I went back in, it really, it activated some of my own PTSD. Other than writing, what have you been able to do for yourself to kind of help calm that down or process through, if that makes sense. Yeah. Hard question. I mean, COVID has made it really, really challenging to do a lot of the things that I depend on for my regulation psychic and mental regulation. So uh, not enough, but uh, what I've found is being able to carve out even the smallest moments of uninterrupted thought. So I can just puzzle through something. And this sounds like a very intellectual thing. And obviously I'm, I'm cognizant that it's also in the body as well, but that's a piece, the uninterrupted thought space is really, really important to me. And also I'm just reading everything I can about how other people are making sense of this time so that I can understand how it fits in or doesn't fit in with my own thinking about it. I'm an intellectualizer. So that, that is helping me. Um, I have not yet recreated a regular practice, but quite honestly, yoga is extremely helpful, has been in my life and they're now having it in the park. So if I can do that regularly, that would be good. I went to one class in like 
barely kept myself together, <laughs> but it felt really good. It felt really you know, good. one of the things that I've been talking to people about in COVID, which is, it's so interesting to me because my job is to help people find things like yoga. I think like everything else, right? Like we minimize grief. We don't want to talk about it. We throw it in a therapist's office and we pathologize the person who's having the trouble. We also minimize some of these ancient practices as mm. sort of like, I don't know, it's for Gwyneth Paltrow or something. And <laughs> In reality, yoga is this whole meditative mind-body experience, which we know, we know we have so much neuroscience and qualitative research and quantitative research that tells us that those sort of body breath practices help people feel regulated. And that's the word, like it doesn't cure our grief. It doesn't, I say this to people all the time. Like if I were to give you a very difficult math puzzle to do while you were scared, the likelihood of you being able to be successful at that math problem is very slim. And then I can tell you why, because I can tell you what's going on with your brain. It's similar when people are trying to navigate spaces like COVID, right? Where it's like, how am I going to make decisions about whether my kids are safe to go outside? How am I going to make a decision about when to go back into work? How am I going to keep people safe? Part of what I think we're still minimizing is that you got to make sure that your body's regulated. Because if you can't come into those spaces with curiosity and creativity right now, because this is a completely unknown space, then we're in trouble. We can't go back, right? It's a before and after situation. Many people do not want to go back. Many people having lived a year in a different setup are they want to hold some of the, they want to telecommute. They want to do yoga. I am constantly saying to people, it doesn't matter if you don't do yoga tomorrow, it will matter if you do it today because it will change how you feel in your body. Just the breath work will change how you feel in your body. I don't care what yoga you do, by the way, you can do Ashtanga, which is more like running a marathon, or you can do yin yoga, which is like deep, deep grief stretching. And I think people who build practices don't build them in their mind. They build the practices, which is I get my body into that space. It feels good. I want to do it again tomorrow. So I love you describing the intellectualization because I am similar when my mom died and I came back out of treatment and everybody's heard me say this a million times and I really need to go back and count. But immediately I read about 88 books. I asked everyone like, what is any book that you have ever read that has a grief component to it that I should read that could help me? Because C.S. Lewis says we read to feel understood. And I was like, that's what I'm looking for. And I didn't read all of those books. I read the first 30 or 60 pages. Many of them were thrown across the room because they weren't right for me. Right. But I really was sort of academically looking. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I want to know what's out there. And, the, and I'm making a very long point here, which is I am not the same today in COVID as a mother, as a wife, as a grief advocate. Like I'm just not the same as I was when I used to have a, a regular yoga practice. So I can't even assume right now that the yoga class that used to exist, that I used to go to would be the thing that's going to like regulate me and ring my bell, that it might be more like I need to run. I don't really know. So that's where I'm trying to navigate right now, which is not only is there a before and after, but I am really maybe not even in my body, particularly because I'm one of those people that put on weight during, <laughs> but I am not the same in my body. And so I'm hoping to kind of encourage people to see this with a learner's eye. Hmm. We're coming back into the world, having had this event that our great grandchildren are going to read about and ask, what was that like? What, what happened? What do you mean? You couldn't go to restaurants. What do you mean? All the churches closed. 
And I'm hoping that, that we're going to find things that maybe are going to impact our bodies different because we have been in our bodies differently with a lot of worry for more than a year and a lot of grief. Absolutely. I mean, the grief takes so many forms too. I really love that you very careful to point out that traumatic events are traumatic, but not everybody, people's bodies and minds respond differently. And I think that's a really important point. And so there are so many unknowns about how we are going to reemerge, right? And we have learned so much and we have lost so much. And we've also gained a different perspective on things, many of us. The big pull for me about the connection points between the aftermath of September 11th compared with how we had to deal, especially in the early part of the pandemic, where we knew so little about the science, about how this virus was transmitted, just the way that everybody came together in yeah. New York and in, in other places, but my lived experience was here in New York, that just everybody was kind to each other in these different ways was like more patient. I mean, New Yorkers are never patient, right? But like <laughs> granted people more space yeah. than patients. Now, of course, there was also also happening, and I covered this as a journalist, there were anti-Muslim and anti-Arab hate crimes and anybody who was presumed to be Middle Eastern, there were, that, that happened too. And I don't want to- Both and, they both- Exactly, both exactly. Yeah. Right. And so the, the whole complicated, messy history is really crucial. And I do talk about some of those instances in the book, because I think it's really so critical that we, that we center the full complicated history. But what I was going to say is that COVID forced us to stay apart. Like yeah. that was the way that we have shown our love to our families, to our neighbors, right? I love you by not coming to your house right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so that just that division as a society, how are we going to come back together? And we're going to clearly, I would, I would clearly, who knows? I would think that we are, we have a different level of appreciation. I know that even though I was able to see my parents and be physically near them six feet apart in August before any of us were vaccinated, I did not hug my parents until they were vaccinated many, many months later just that ability to grab hold of them is hugely moving. Yeah. You know, and, and similarly there's bioscience behind all of that, right? Like when, yeah. a, when a mother has a baby and they put that baby on the chest of the mother, right after the baby's born, there's reason for that. There, those heartbeats are used to hearing each other and it's known that babies thrive and do better. They have better APGAR scores, you know, yep. the, in the later ones, if you, the baby goes on the chest and there's bioscience around if I hug you and hug you in that cross hug and we take a couple of deep breaths that your body and my body regulate very quickly to the same breath. Like in the eighties, when they were like, oh, I have to figure out who I am. I have to go to a cabin in the woods. We actually have different social science, which says actually we, most of us come to know who we are in connection to other people. So not only has it been this very bizarre kind of lonely and alone, right? Like there's the alone of it. And then there's the lonely of it, which are an isolation. You know, those are kind of like three different cracks in the same mug, but they have different biophysical experiences. There's the lonely and the lone. And then there's this, like, I haven't had the external regulation. And I've told a story a dozen times, but it's, it's the best one I have, which is I had a client one time call me and she was like, I need an emergency appointment. And she was really 
not okay. And I was like, okay, I happen to have an hour come on over. So my, my office used to be in DuPont circle, which is a very big, busy area in in the district. Mm. And she ran over from her office, which wasn't far and came in with a cup of coffee. And she came in with this like huge smile on her face. And I was like, wait a minute, what? And she was like, I know I've been in this awful mood and like every, everything is a problem. And she really did have big world problems that needed to get solved. And, and her head really was in that space. And I said, well, yeah, but what's going on? And she was like, okay, I'm going to tell you what's going on. Like I left my building and the security guard called me gorgeous. And then I went and got a cup of coffee and the guy in front of me paid for my cup of coffee. And then I paid for the lady in front of me and we made this little coffee chain and you know, they had my favorite pastries. And then when I came out, this lady said she liked my shoes and liked my skirt. She really was wearing this awesome skirt. And when I came into your building, the, that person was so friendly and said like, oh, you're not here on your regular day. And she had just had all of these micro moments with humans. And essentially every one of those humans was like, I'm glad you're here. Nice to see you like a head nod. You know, if you've ever given a big lecture and no one's heads are moving and no one's smiling, you just want to fall into the floor. (laughs) But when people are nodding at you and smiling and you're like, yes, what I'm talking about is landing and people understand me. That's the shit we've given up by staying inside our houses. Those micro moments of being regulated by other humans that we're all okay. I'm okay. I joke that I like rock back and forth in the corner at night, but I kind of do, you know, all the dark and scaries for me happen at seven o'clock. I'm really good. If I can wave to people I know in the neighborhood, we get a lot of that at work. We get a lot of that going to work. We get that standing on the side of a soccer field, talking to other parents. We get that from professional connection. And it's not that we can't get it in zoom. But when you think about energy, Zoom does not allow us the energy of being next to each other and feeling things. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, but it, it, there's, it's another both and, right? I think one thing that's really important is to acknowledge the other experience, which is the opposite of aloneness, where you just being absolutely crowded with yeah. my partner, and my two young children this entire time. Like I just aloneness just sounds like, like, right. Right. I, I was just getting so mad at people who are saying they were lonely or bored. I just wanted to explode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I would like to be alone. I would like to be lonely. I absolutely do. Yes. You're absolutely right. That's a, that's a genius point. And the other thing too, is that, you know, we, there's this, they're talking about narratives. There's this narrative that the world shut down, that everyone's just on zoom, that people, People work from home, but a whole lot of people never shut down, never started working from home and have had to bear the burden of that, that dysregulation that you were talking about, that constant fear, that constant juggling of safety and, and the unknowns while being out in the world and having to interact with other people. And whether that's people, you know, who are making food, you know, for takeout or people in medical fields, construction work many, many times just kept going. So as we reckon with where we have come, like how far we have come, where we have arrived, we need to make sure that we're looking at all the different stories um, so that we're coming to a sense of wholeness without leaving some folks behind. That's, that's a big thing that I'm thinking a lot about. It's well, and you're, it's exactly right to point out and 
your and the difficulty when anybody is talking about like an experience is really you're talking about your own experience. And so what I was hearkening on were sort of the clients that I have been working with. And many of them, because I'm a private pay therapist, don't qualify in the groups that you're talking about. But but also I'm a friend who is a doctor in New York City and a lot of the phone calls that I took from her were about not realizing that the world considered her disposable. And I don't know that that is true, but it's certainly, I can't tell her that wasn't how she was treated. Who knows? Maybe we'll get back together in a year's time and we can ask this question, but the notion of whose story matters and how is it told and what is the narrative, right? I mean, part of the reason that Saved by the Seawall just blew me away is I, I can't imagine what it feels like for those people who rushed towards danger with no guidance, no training, maybe even afraid that they were going to lose their jobs and get right. in trouble for what they were doing. It's more people than Dunkirk to not have that story be a story. We like to tell a Hollywood story like it's a monolith, you know, it has one narrative to it. And I understand that nothing is truly like that. But for little kids to not be saying, hey, my aunt's one of those people who was one of those boat captains that day. And then like, oh my God, tell me the story. To not give them that opportunity is really stripping that entire story of that entire day and the legacies after it. And that's really what I was thinking when I was reading the book is this, I'm going to lose my mind. And I, I mean, I even said it to you, like, I am losing my mind about this story. Like, how is this a story that, that I have gone without knowing mostly because I think the hardest thing is, and the thing we need the most is that concept of hope. Right. I think people like to think like, oh, well, there are good people and bad people out there. And I think there are people who do good and bad. And sometimes they're the same person. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's how I feel about myself. But I, but I think people are actually capable of extraordinary things, both in the dark side and the light side. Yes. But this story is just one of those that, that we need to know, which is that, yes, yes, we absolutely minimized and put people in complete danger, terrorized them for their religion, you know, made them feel unwelcome. That is who we are, but also this is who we are. Yes. And I, you know, I don't want to miss that. And so I'm, I'm just going to say it again to people every year. I, you know, give a, a host of people who are readers in my world. I don't force books on people who are like, I don't like books, but I give them a stack of books and I already have, I've already ordered like 12 of your books, Jessica. And it's going to be in my stack because I just think not only is it an incredible story, you know, there are a lot of incredible stories out there. There are some that are incredible stories that are poorly written. This story is also gorgeously like I under, just as a reader and a writer, I underlined some writing. Cause I was like, damn, that's such a pretty sentence. That's such <sighs> a description for anybody that either misses New York or used to, you know, live in New York or just loves New York. It also is this, like, it feels like a real New York story on top of everything. Like the voices of the people that you capture are there. There's so much pride in who they are in their city and it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful book. I hope you feel incredibly proud of it. I know you gave a lot to do, you know, it was a, it was a personal task. This wasn't something that you quickly wrote. It was, you had to go all the way into the water, dive mm -hmm. under the deep, deep emotional stuff. And it definitely shows it's in all of the words. 
And I'm just really grateful to have reconnected with you and gotten a chance to talk about this. And I hope everybody reads this book. I hope this book goes all of the places. I hope to see you, you know, I don't know, like on the Today Show, holding this book up and talking. But I do also know for anyone who is curious about this world of boats that are out there in the harbor, there's a video clip of you that I saw somewhere. It must have been on your feed or maybe I went and found it on the boat, right? Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. My, my website has all the collected video and yes. And I was, I was on the today show many, many years ago, not about this story. So it might've been that, but there are in CBS Sunday morning and USA today and things. So one of those videos perhaps is there, but I, I just think you're, you're totally right in that we really need this, these stories. We need these stories of human goodness. We need these stories of, of understanding that when bad things happen, people summon up remarkable capacities, remarkable resourcefulness, remarkable just goodness. We are so often driven by media that over and over again splits us apart and yeah. you know, de-emphasizes our humanity and, and emphasizes the differences between us. This is a story about how people came together and God, yeah, I, I'm with you. We need it. And that for me is what this is all about. It's about preserving the history and making sure that we're, we're telling the truth of what happened and recording these moments of goodness. Because if all we do is record the moments of horror and perpetration of evil, then, then we're missing a really important source of hope, which of course, as you know, is active. It's not a passive thing. Right. That's right. There are various ways that people, when they're grieving, need hope. I'm very careful with my language right now because there are no stages of grief. So I don't want to throw that word in there accidentally. But there are different elements, like when people are in really fresh grief and the gong inside their brain is still sort of ringing, there's a way that you need hope then. And then there's a way that a year out you need hope. I think that this story is a grief story. You know, it's a trauma story and a a grief story, but it is infused with just, you know, I think the best parts of us. Mm -hmm. So I'm incredibly grateful to, to you for talking about this. I really hope that we stay connected and I am suspicious that I'm going to have lots more questions for you, both about (laughs) writing and all of those things. As we were talking, ordered your other book. So I'm going to have some more reading to do, but I, I really encourage people to go out and get the book. I will put that link in the show notes. I'll put your website in the show notes. And if people want to contact you either about writing or because they're interested in the story, is there a way to do that on your website? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and I look forward to those conversations. I mean, this stuff is I'm so compelled by the work that you're doing. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to dig deep into this stuff with you. It is just wild to be back connected. I know the interwebs is (laughs) full of danger for all kinds of things, but I have been so grateful to be reconnecting with people through it and, you know, getting to hear these extraordinary stories. So thank you so much for being here with us today for folks who are listening on your various, you know, where you listen to podcasts, I would love it if you could, I think Apple is the only one right now, but if you can go over into Apple and give us a rating so that people find us, cause I'm, you know, I'm really crazy passionate about doing grief education, a larger, our, our speakers, a larger platform to get their stories told so that all of us can feel better educated and better grief informed as we're walking into this world where grief is just landing on our laps left and right. Jessica Dulong, thank you so much for being here and giving us your time today and best of luck with the book and all the things. And I know we'll stay connected. 
we will definitely. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Talk bye soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.